right, good morning. I think we're gonna get started. Uh, thank you all for joining in person and via webcast. Um, today's a happy day for me because my Chiefs won the Super Bowl <laughs> last night. Thank you all for coming on Super Bowl Monday. Um, so we are convening here in early 2020, which is a pivotal year for the global HIV response. The UNAIDS Fast Track Milestones, which are intended to measure progress toward ending HIV as a public health threat, come due on World AIDS Day this year. Those milestones measure progress on preventing new infections, providing life-saving treatment, reductions in viral suppression that result in the inability to pass on the virus, as well as reductions in stigma and other societal drivers of the virus. We're not on track to meet those milestones this year, but that's not because we don't know what to do. Where there has been concerted, targeted, and well-financed efforts, we see progress. Dramatic reductions in new infections, large uptake of treatment, transformational improvements in life expectancy, and most importantly, achievement of the fast-track goals and progress toward controlling the epidemic. 2020 offers us an opportunity to take stock of our accomplishments. Understanding how and where progress is being made allows us to correct policy and program implementation issues, hindering the HIV response, it may also allow us to replicate the success in many endemic areas and prevent the expansion of the epidemic into new communities. We have the best arsenal of diagnostic, preventative, and therapeutic tools that we've ever had, and there are lessons to learn from the places that have figured out how to get those tools to those who need them most. Today's conversation is intended to set the stage for where we are at the start of 2020 and highlight what's possible if we keep our focus. We will have a follow-up half-day conference on April 15th, which will delve into more of the risks and the challenges and the adaptations in policy and approach that are needed to more aggressively move us to our 2030 target. We're pleased to announce that UNAIDS Executive Director Winnie Bianima will be our headliner at that conference on April 15th, so we hope that you join us there. We'll also be premiering our documentary, The Pandemic Paradox, HIV on the Edge, and you'll get a short preview of that film at the end of today's session. So uh, let me start with introductions of our panel today, and let me introduce myself since I didn't do that. My name is Sarah Allender, and I'm Executive Director and Senior Fellow here with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and I lead our HIV work. And I'm joined today by Regan Hoffman, who is the Director AI of the Joint United Nations Program on HIV AIDS, UNAIDS, U.S. Liaison Office here in Washington, where she leads strategic collaborations between UNAIDS and the executive and congressional branches of the U.S. government to advance strong U.S. support for the global response to HIV. Jen Cates is Senior Vice President and Director of Global Health and HIV Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation, where she oversees the foundation's policy analysis and research focused on the U.S. government's role in global health and on the global and domestic HIV epidemics. Greg Millett is Vice President and Director of Public Policy at AMFAR, where he works on both global and domestic U.S. HIV policy. He's a trained epidemiologist and has worked for CDC and was seconded to the White House Office of National AIDS Policy prior to joining AMFAR. So please help me welcome our three panelists and we're gonna get started. So first I'm gonna ask Reagan to talk to us a little bit about where we are here at 2020 in terms of the latest data and um, modeling on the pandemic. 
Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And I will um, start many of you in the room and, and uh, through the webcast know some of the things that I'm going to say, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. The title, I think, of today's panel captures it brilliantly. I mean, we've had enormous success, um, but we do threaten um, going backwards in some places, or we haven't made enough progress in other places. So generally speaking, um, in 2015, UNAIDS and global partners set a new set of targets for the world on HIV. Um, many of you know there was a treatment target of 90-90-90. 90% of all people with HIV aware of their status, 90% of those aware on treatment, and 90% of those on treatment virally suppressed so that they were non-infectious and could not transmit the disease. We also set a treatment target, um, sorry, a prevention target, with the goal of reducing new infections by 75% by 2020, by the end of 2020, so that we would have no more than half a million new infections in 2020. And um, we wanted to reduce stigma and discrimination. And none of this would have been possible in a vacuum. There were a lot of things that had to happen to give us even a remote shot at achieving those targets. And we won't know where we are precisely against those targets until the end of 2020 when we process the data and release it in the middle of 2021. But what we do know already is that we're off track in some places. Um, the general numbers are trending in the right direction. We're having, we have significant increases in the number of people on treatment. Of the 37.9 million people estimated to be living with HIV, we have 24.5 million on treatment. Four out of five people living with it know their status. And about, um, on the 90-90-90, we're at 79, 78, 86%. So we're in the aggregate, in a good place. Um, prevention, we're not doing as well. We have only, um, well, our, our last data for 2018 was 1.7 million new infections, which is more than three times the target of half a million. So that's not a good trend, but overall we are still seeing a reduction in new infections. And mortality is declining. We're under a million. We're around 770,000 age-related deaths in 2018, but that's still, of course, an enormous amount of people perishing from this disease. So good numbers, good trends, but when you go below the overall numbers, it gets very, very different depending on where you are in the world. So we have two different factors, geography, and we're seeing certain regions where we're making good progress, primarily in East and Sub-Saharan Africa, not, you know, not universally in those regions, but Primarily, the progress is there. We're seeing some countries approach epidemic control, some debate on how we define control, but enormous progress, even surpassing the 90-90-90 treatment target, doing well on prevention. We see other places where we're really lagging behind, um, Eastern, Eastern Europe, West and Central Africa in particular, Russia, um, certain countries, Mozambique, Nigeria, where we have some real challenges. And then, of course, we have smaller but rapidly expanding new um, rising rates of infection in places like the Philippines um, and Pakistan. So front edge of the curve, we want to make sure that we focus there and don't let that get out of control. But it's not just geography. Um, it's also who are we leaving behind? You know, of the children who are living with HIV, only 54% have treatment. That's a lot of children we still have to reach. We have, obviously, gaps in uh, adolescent girls and young women. We're seeing disproportionate effect on adolescent girls and young women, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, 6,000 new infections a week. Um, young women in the age bracket of 15 to 24 are twice as likely to become infected as their male peers. Um, part of that is driven by um, gender-based violence, which of course has an effect um, in both directions. If you have HIV, you're more susceptible to gender-based violence. If you have experienced gender-based violence, you're more susceptible to contracting HIV. Um, key populations, obviously a large group um, comprising different 
parts of the populace, men who have sex with men, gay men, injection drug users, um, people on the move, either forced or voluntarily, people with disabilities, people who are incarcerated, um, you know, the LGBTI community who is under threat in the various parts of the world. So we've done a lot of good stuff. We know we can end the epidemic with what we have, theoretically, um, but we have a lot of work to do to get it right in the, in the geographies and among the subpopulations that we have not made as much progress as we would have liked to. Um, it's a very, um, you, we talk about key populations a lot, but I just, I, I'm always struck at our data. 22 times the risk for men who have sex with men for getting HIV, 22 times higher among people who inject drugs, 22 times higher for sex workers, um, transgender people, sorry, 12 times more likely to get HIV. These are not acceptable rates of infection for human beings who are susceptible to a disease that we can prevent. We have to do something differently. Um, we know what to do, and there are things that we can do in each one of the groups and in each one of the areas. Um, an example with young women, we know keeping them in school, we know that giving them bridging to job opportunities so they're economically empowered and independent can help. We can go through the list of all the geographies and all the different groups and talk about what we can do to help them. Jen will talk about the money, but just a quick point on that. The resources at the end of 2018, about 19 billion in low and middle income countries, about 56% of that coming from domestic resources in the countries that are affected themselves. But that number's been stagnant, so we need to be honest about that. And we need to find a way to move that needle um, in the right direction, as well as um, continuing the support that we've had globally through the Global Federal Punishment, which Jen will talk about, and um, through other donor nations. Um, just quickly, I think this year I had obviously a huge year for HIV with the International Conference coming to the United States. The juxtaposition of Oakland and San Francisco, pretty much um, a mirror of what we're seeing globally in places where you have the political leadership and you have the money and you're able to get the tools to the people. Um, we can make enormous progress in places like Oakland where we're not able to um, access the tools to, for people, we're, we're not going to make the same kind of progress. So it's a great example um, in a very small context of what we need to fix globally. Um, UNAIDS is in the middle of the, well, we're beginning the development of our next five-year strategy. We have a new executive director, Winnie Bianima, who you will hear from in April. Um, and we're looking at that strategy development in the context of the next high-level meeting, which will be in the middle of 2021. So another time when every five years we gather member, state, um, member states to think about how we can advance meaningfully the work on HIV-AIDS. Um, and I think I'm going to pause there because we're going to have a broad conversation. But that sort of gives you the general lay of the land. So, you know, enormous proof of concept, enormous hope, but the scale is incredible. And of course, in a world that is arguably moving more internally focused, more conservative, um, and we have pressing additional challenges, including health challenges like coronavirus, how do we, how do we step up the game on HIV? Great. Thanks, Reagan. Um, Jen, let me turn to you. Um, we're now a few months past the sixth replenishment for the Global Fund, uh, which took place in October, and Congress recently approved flat funding for PEPFAR um, against calls for significant cuts from the, the President. Can you walk us through the current state of global financing and where we find ourselves at the start of this year? Sure, good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to be here. Thanks to CSIS and, and Sarah and Steve for this opportunity. Um, I'm going to do a good news, bad news. And when I um, ask my kid if he wants to hear the good news or bad news first, he always picks good news. So I'll, I'll start there. Um, 
So I'm going to start with the good news, which is the Global Fund Replenishment, um, which happened in October. And the goal was to raise about $14 billion, and a little bit more than that was raised. So this is pledged money over the, a three-year period that uh, governments and private sector and others came together and pledged to the Global Fund. Um, if you compare that to the prior pledge period, uh, which was about $12.2 billion, that's 1.8 billion more over a three-year period should it materialize. That's kind of incredible um, at this point in time. Um, just I'm going to keep doing some math. So that translates to about 600 million a year for each of those three years. And HIV has historically been about half of that spending. So that could yield or should, if things all materialize, an additional 300 million a year for HIV in addition to what had been provided by the Global Fund before. And these are, you know, there's a lot that has to happen to make all of that, that um, play out, but that's a good sign. Many countries increase their pledges. Canada, the EU, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Portugal, the UK, all increased by at least 15% over what they had done before. Um, the U.S. increased for the first year of its pledge, which will be, which is the uh, appropriation, to 1.56, and this was billion, and this is the first increase in six years to the Global Fund, and the third largest ever. So these are, I mean, in this day and age when we're always talking about downward pressures on budgets, um, the fact that this happened, it's a proof that these kinds of mobilizations can happen, that there's a lot of faith in the Global Fund, a lot of um, proof in the ability of community to sort of mobilize that support. Resources can be marshaled. So that's the good news. Also, I guess, good news for 20, this, this period of time, PEPFAR sustaining funding levels um, despite a very large proposed cut by the administration. Uh, we take that, I guess, as good news these days. Um, but some of the bad news, um, PEPFAR's funding is still below where it was at 2010. Um, and we know that more people are still in need of treatment and prevention. PEPFAR disbursements, so the money that PEPFAR is able to provide out to the field, are starting to outpace the appropriations, um, or catching up and starting to outpace. Um, it used to be a little bit the other way around as the program in the first years was starting up and you know, as an emergency response. And so there was more money coming um, from the Congress to the programs and then taking some time to get things in the field set up. Now we're in a different scenario, so that's a challenge. And more broadly, um, we released a, an analysis recently looking at the global funding gap to try to understand how big it was. Um, we looked at, as, as Regan mentioned, how, many, how much was uh, available. In, as in 2018, it was 19 billion. We also looked at what the estimated needs were. And using a model that UNAIDS has put out, uh, the, the model said that if um, uh, 26 billion, 26.2 billion was raised by the end of this year, the world would be on track to reach 2020, 2030 goals. Well, what we found is, you know, there's a big delta between 19 and 26.2 billion, um, but we said, well, that's, that's 2018. So we did project forward and say, well, what if resources increase at a similar rate? We still found about a $6 billion gap. Um, so by the end of this year, we're still going to be in the billions in terms of the gap between what is estimated to be needed and what will be available. Why that is important is the modeling that's been done and that we heard about for 2030 is predicated on the idea if you spend more now, you will save lives, which is the main goal, and save more later. And actually, the model shows that money, the funding needs start to go down once you reach that goal. So we're not going to reach it, so it extends out the period of time. 
It also, more importantly, more lives are, are, are not going to be saved. Um, we also looked at the possibility and the, uh, and the op opportunity for more domestic resource mobilization because uh, we're all kind of focused on that. That's clearly an area that needs more attention. There's a lot of promise there, but there's also a lot of challenge. One is um, we know that many of the governments that are low in middle income, um, middle income and even ones that are upper middle income at this point face increasing com competition for budgetary needs. There's debt, there's other health issues, there's other sectors. Um, they ha have a relatively low tax base, so mobilizing increased tax revenue is important but will require more effort. Several of them are fragile states, are facing ongoing challenges and conflict. And then the other thing to guard against is um, sometimes the domestic resource mobilization amounts are including out-of-pocket costs. And this isn't really about out-of-pocket. Out-of-pocket costs on people and households is a strain on people's ability to, for survival. So this is really about mobilizing more public resources, and in some cases, private sector, to contribute to that domestic resource um, bucket. Uh, but ultimately, um, I think this is a, a, a real challenge. If, even if by the end of this year it's not a $6 billion gap, it's a $4 billion gap. Um, that's still very significant, and that does translate into more lives lost and more money spent in the long run. So that's, that's the bad news. Um, there's more good news, but I'll wait until we come back to the next question. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. Uh, Greg, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the report that AMFAR partnered with AVAC and the global, uh, Friends of the Global Fight uh, and put out in July, looking at uh, where targeted efforts are working and what's possible for epidemic control. Great, thank you. Uh, good morning, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak this morning. Um, last July, AVAC, AMFAR, and Friends of the Global Fight released a report translating progress into success to end the AIDS epidemic. The report highlights six places, London, Malawi, New South Wales, Rakai, San Francisco, and Thailand, that have successfully reduced new HIV diagnoses and AIDS-related deaths through a combination of biomedical, policy, structural, and rights-based interventions. Now, we purposely chose these localities in the global north and global south with different epidemics to show that progress can be made in any setting. In effect, the main point of the report is that ending the HIV epidemic is not simple anywhere, but possible everywhere. And the keys to success that we found in each of these localities is that, one, there were campaigns to encourage HIV testing, particularly among groups most affected by HIV. Two, free and easy access to treatment and diagnosis with HIV regardless of CD4 level. Three, scale-up of HIV testing, evidence-based HIV prevention, such as voluntary medical male circumcision, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and harm reduction. And four, concerted efforts to provide human rights-based services and social supports alongside programs to fight stigma and discrimination, ideally in the context of broad health care access. Now, there are several scenarios that we provide in each one of the contexts that we have in the report, and I'm only going to name a few of the scenarios. So for instance, in Thailand, Thailand, the Thai government acted early with the national 100% condom campaign in 1991 that made condoms freely and widely available, including in sex work venues. Thailand's domestic commitment to antiretroviral therapy began in the 1990s with more than 85% of HIV programming domestically financed. And in 2006, access to treatment was expanded with the inclusion of ART in universal health coverage. 
In Malawi, Malawi launched its national treatment program in 2004 in Global Fund Round 1. Only 3,000 people were on treatment then. To increase numbers of people on treatment, Malawi authorized treatment initiation by nurses and clinical officers. And by 2016, with PEPFAR and Global Fund support, 91% of people aware of their HIV status access ART. And voluntary medical male circumcision programs reached over 100,000 men annually. By 2016, Malawi moved to universal test and treat. Similarly in Rakhai, after early progress, Uganda saw a significant rise in new infections between 2006 and 2009. Responding with a reset of policies and programs, Uganda accelerated ART and VMMC scale-up and turned its response around. And in 2016, Uganda adopted universal test and treat. Now, there are also parts of the report um, where there are some localities that have made dramatic progress, but since we've released the report, there is even further changes that have been made. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about San Francisco and London. Um, in San Francisco, starting in 2006, um, San Francisco made <clears throat> HIV testing more accessible and widespread by simplifying consent. In 2010, the city was the first in the nation to initiate treatment on HIV diagnoses, regardless of CD4 level. And San Francisco also developed programs to accelerate linkage to treatment and scaled up PrEP delivery. The city's Getting to Zero initiative focused on wider access to PrEP and rapid ART program linking people to treatment in efforts to reach people not currently accessing services, particularly those who face serious challenges to medical adherence. Now, the new uh, report from San Francisco where we have some new information is that in October of last year, we heard that the state of California overall removed barriers to obtaining PrEP and PEP um, post-exposure prophylaxis. California expanded access to HIV prevention drugs by allowing pharmacies to remove barriers to medications. The law also bars insurance companies from requiring prior authorization before the HIV prevention drugs are provided. Now, this is important because supporters of the law said that it removes barriers such as having to wait for a doctor's appointment, which could take weeks before you take these life-saving HIV prevention drugs. And the California Health Benefit Review Program estimated that this law change would result result in 700 people obtaining these drugs in the first year alone, leading to 25 fewer cases of new HIV transmissions. Similarly, <clears throat> similarly in London, we've seen some market changes that have taken place since we've released our report. Within the report, you could see that we spoke about what's been taking place in the London epidemic, that it reached its inflection point in 2015 when new HIV diagnoses began to fall particularly among gay and bisexual men. And the reasons for these successes is because of increased HIV and STI testing, especially among those at high risk for HIV, scale up of PrEP and rapid initiation of HIV and STI treatment at or as close to diagnosis as possible. Now these interventions were delivered primarily by sexual health clinics in London that offered comprehensive services and support and occurred against a backdrop of a supportive policy environment, including universal health coverage, which provides free care. Now the update is that, the good news is that this is not just London. Uh, we just recently heard in the last few weeks that the UK in general, there's been some really encouraging numbers. Uh, with an estimated 104,000 people living with HIV in the UK from 2018, 93% have been diagnosed. Of these, 97% are receiving treatment. And of these, 97% are undetectable. More importantly, HIV infections in the UK overall fell 71% among gay and bisexual men between 2012 and 2018. These are just remarkable numbers and real advances that we're seeing in many of these localities and actually reducing the HIV epidemic and coming to an end of HIV. Okay.
Thank you. Um, maybe picking back in on that a little bit, Greg, um, but question for each of you is uh, around this issue of the now 50, more than 50% of those who are newly infected being in the key population groups, MSM, um, sex workers, transgender, IDUs. What do you think that means in terms of how policies and programs are going to need to adapt uh, in order to address this population? Do you want to start, Greg, and then we'll come back to Regan? Sure. There, there are several things that, that we know need to get done. Um, first of all, we know that stigma is real. It's a real issue for key populations in many different countries. Um, we've seen that for those prep programs that we've been able to start globally, um, those particularly focusing on MSM as well as um, commercial sex workers, that those programs have been so stigmatized that people are afraid to utilize them, even if they're part of those groups. Um, we know that HIV criminalization remains um, a, a barrier uh, to accessing uh, um, many of these programs, particularly criminalization against LGBT populations. Uh, we all heard the news of what happened with the recall of the Zambian ambassador just recently uh, to the U.S. after criticizing uh, some of the laws that were taking place there. Um, Mauritania just this past weekend arrested 10 gay men after a purported um, gay wedding. Um, and Tanzania last November um, arrested 10 gay men where they uh, raided civil society um, to really take a look at what type of prevention and other materials were being offered um, and actually jeopardizing um, some of these people's civil rights by trying to do forced um, exams on these individuals just to verify whether or not they're engaged in homosexual activities. As long as we have these activities taking place, it's going to be very difficult for us to reach um, key populations. I think the other issue that we have as well that we need to start thinking about in key populations is how we count key populations. Um, there's been a lot of work that we've done in trying to really look at population size estimates for key populations, which is important because if we know what the population sizes are, we can set reasonable targets and have actual funding uh, going to these groups. But many of the population size estimates that we receive are problematic um, in some of the ways that the studies are done. Um, they are hugely undercounted, um, and they lead to underfunding for some of these populations. So we need to think of other ways that we can get at better population sizes for key populations, such as uh, taking a look at Facebook, taking a look at some of the apps that some of these key populations might be on, rather than just looking at respondent-driven sampling in other ways that we've traditionally done some of this work and try and triangulate some of this work uh, to see if we can get additional funding for these groups. I would just add, I mean, that's most of what I would have said, but I think the, the impact of criminalization on people with HIV is just outsized. You know, I've been living with HIV for 25 years. You finally get to the point where you're convinced that you're not going to die and you can take the medication and survive, and then you spend the rest of your life worrying about being put in jail because someone alleges that you didn't disclose to them, which is part of why I'm so openly disclosed with my HIV. It inoculates me somewhat, but not even entirely. I cannot imagine what it's like to be a gay person in Uganda and hunted, you know, both for whom I love and because I'm living with HIV or one or the other. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unthinkable. And until we, we've talked about this for a long time, but I think we're at the point of the epidemic where we need to find a way to really actually change this stuff. And that's a role that UNAIDS plays in country. We help and support civil society in country, doing the work that they do, the advocacy with their own governments to try to change the laws. 
challenge the laws, um, prevent them from happening. But it's something that we have to redouble, obviously, at this point. I think the science, obviously, is a big part of that. Um, I've been fascinated listening to the arguments around U equals U, and there's a sensitivity around that framing, that you can be undetectable and therefore mm -hmm. not able to transmit the virus. Some people who are not actually undetectable are worried that labeling U equals U as the ultimate sort of be all and end all is problematic, and, and I can see why that's true. But there's also value in helping people understand that you're non infectious so that we can bring the science into these arguments and hopefully get people to a place where they can think about if our goal is to stop human suffering and to stop the spread of a, you know, of a pathogen that's contagious, we have to be able to separate some of these things at some point in this epidemic. Just one thing I wanted to add really quickly that, that I, I failed to mention um, is the fact that we've in some ways compartmentalized a lot of our KP programs into specialized programming rather than being a part of general programming, um, especially since many KP populations actually receive their services um, within general programs. And, and it's really problematic. Um, and we know that it's problematic based upon uh, several analyses that were done. Steph Farrell released a, an analysis in The Lancet last July. There was a follow-up analysis that was released in New England Journal of Medicine um, in October, and then another one around World AIDS Day um, in current opinions of infectious disease, which found that you know in many places of the world where there are generalized epidemics, if we're not able to successfully um, um, have key populations virally suppressed within those generalized epidemics, that we're going to see a resurgence, potentially, of HIV within some of those particular countries. So it's very clear that, generalized, that um, key populations really must be addressed in a specific way, even in generalized epidemics. Funny, tiny footnote. This idea that key populations live in a bubble is, is so dangerous, right? I mean, nobody lives in a bubble. And so it's not like key populations or members of key populations do not interact with the, the rest of humanity. And I think that that's something we need to make sure people understand. Yeah, um, just, just to add, I think from my vantage point, both PEPFAR and the Global Fund are really critical here, and both have um, played a very fundamental role to date on trying to figure out the best ways to Marshall support for key populations through policy, through diplomacy, through funding. But clearly that, that is, you know, it's not a given going forward that, that that pressure will always be there. So I think it's, you know, there's an opportunity now. The, the Global Fund is developing a new strategic, a new strategy for the next several years. We're about to enter into the sort of COP review phase. These are really important opportunities to um, bring the data, bring the information and the expertise to countries and try to um, if using the best science and information that we have, try to affect change to make better policies. Um, the, the conversation around key populations uh, also brings to mind the domestic epidemic, since that's where the core burden is. And I wonder for each of you, your reflections around where we are domestically, but also how the announcement of the and the epidemic plan in the State of the Union last year change the dialogue or, or didn't change the dialogue from your vantage points um, and, and what that means for what's possible both here in the U.S. but also globally. Go ahead. Sure, I, I think that um, there's a lot of opportunity with the EHE um, program that the president announced last year. Um, what's different is that it's um, an unprecedented investment into domestic HIV. We have scaling up of prevention programs that we know actually work, um, such as PrEP, um, as well as syringe services programs. I mean, we're seeing syringe services programs being scaled up in places and states that we previously never thought it would be possible. Um, and, and we're seeing a real focus on evidence-based solutions to dealing with the domestic HIV 
epidemic. Those are all the positives. I think some of the things that um, are, are, are the opportunities that we still have yet to achieve is what we were just talking about in terms of the global context, which is some of the policy issues as well. Um, we know that um, uh, there are several policies that are at play that might make it difficult uh, for us to scale up um, under the EHE initiative, um, such as Medicaid expansion. There are uh, five of the seven states that are part of EHE have not expanded Medicaid, and that's problematic because we've seen um, in Louisiana that once they expanded Medicaid, um, that just two years afterwards, they had a precipitous decline in new HIV diagnoses, a 10-year low, um, because there were so many people who were living with HIV who had access to health insurance. Um, there's issues also in terms of HIV criminalization. Uh, we were just talking about HIV criminalization um, globally, but um, domestically, there are quite a few laws, antiquated laws, that exist on the books for HIV criminalization, and CDC just released an analysis showing that states that criminalize HIV actually don't have lower HIV diagnoses compared to states that do. So these laws, in effect, are not helpful. If anything, they're keeping people from getting tested for HIV, so they have plausible deniability about being HIV positive. Um, and they're also keeping people from accessing care in a timely manner. So there's definitely some positives that we're seeing with the domestic epidemic, with lower diagnoses overall over a 10-year period, with um, new resources, with scaling up of specific um, uh, um, evidence-based programs. But there's still a lot of work that we need to do on the policy and to make sure that EHE actually is realized by 2030. Yeah, I, I would just just to add to what Greg said. I mean, I, there really is an opportunity, and we've are in several jurisdictions that have been named as like phase one jurisdictions for this initiative have been mobilizing to um, put together strategies to think a little bit differently. What could they do with some new resources above what they already get that could have the impact? And in the report that um, Greg talked about earlier, that Amfar and AVAC and Friends of the Global Fight did, is sort of those lessons. What are those ingredients that could really be scaled up in a community? At a community level to make a difference. And I, I think there's some real opportunity, even at the end of two years, if five communities are able to move forward in this direction, that's a win. Um, so I just, I think we should all be looking to that. Another point in time to think about um, what will the budget request for this initiative be? So the budget is coming out in just a few weeks. Um, when it was first announced last year, the idea that I think was implied that this would be scaled up. So it'll be really interesting to see what that means in terms of resources. I think it's very um, powerful when the country that's leading the global response and in terms of being the largest donor itself admits that it has a problem with HIV in its own country and invests additional money into it. We've been talking about it, but the numbers have been stagnant for a long time. So, you know, as we work in countries around the world who are being told by the donors that um, they want to see a shift towards sustainability and country ownership, it's a, it's a good message. We have to deliver on it here. Um, we have to have the funding and the policies in place to make it happen. There's also, I think, a powerful um, boomerang effect from the investments that have been made in PEPFAR that could potentially help with the domestic epidemic. It's not radically different. I mean, we've all traveled the world, and this, the situations may have different local specifics, but they are fundamentally the same issues with some of the same dynamics. So perhaps we can take some of the learning that um, we have achieved through our work globally and apply that to the, the places that we're trying to fight HIV here. Thanks. Well, going back to Jen's point on the good and the bad, I'm going to ask you all a good and bad uh, question. Uh, so one is, what do you see as the biggest achievement that we've made kind of globally uh, since the announcement of the Fast Track goals in, in 2014? And then 
on the flip side, what needs to change to be able to meet the 2030 goals? I think you've, you've all touched on a different pieces, but love to um, hear that, that dichotomy from each of you. I'll be really brief. I, I think one of the biggest achievements is seeing um, recognition that um, it's not just scale-up of antiretroviral therapy that is going to get us to the goals that we need to reach by 2030, that it needs to be both treatment as well as prevention. We haven't focused as much on prevention um, in many years, uh, globally or domestically. Uh, but it's encouraging to see the scale-up for prevention, particularly the scale-up that we're now seeing internationally for PrEP um, and PrEP programs. Um, I think the biggest challenge that we have is um, that among people living with HIV that many um, do not continue to be virally suppressed. We keep looking at viral suppression as if it's just this one point in time issue that is, is you know, once we get everyone virally suppressed that we're done. Um, we're not done. We have to continue, make sure that people are continually virally suppressed for their lifetime. But even in the United States, fewer than 50% of people living with HIV are continually virally suppressed. So that's going to be an issue and that we're hoping that long-acting agents that might come online over the next 10 years um, might be able to help us deal with this specific issue. Since 2014. So I think the two things that have happened since 2014 that are really significant, one is PrEP, just to pick up on what Greg said. PrEP was approved uh, by the FDA in 2012. CDC recommendations for the United States didn't come out until 2014. So from a global perspective, that really is a game changer since 2014 in terms of recognition of, of the importance of PrEP. Um, and I think this next year, we could expect to see much more scale up globally of PrEP, at least according to PEPFAR's plans. Um, the other is while the study, the first major study that came out uh, demonstrating that um, antiretroviral therapy um, at, at high, at, at, with viral load suppressed would reduce transmissibility, that was 2011. It really wasn't until just a few years later uh, when study after study kept coming out showing that was that it was not just reduction, it was actually, if you were virally suppressed, you would not transmit sexually. So that knowledge wasn't quite as strong as it was until after 2014, so I think that's really significant. In terms of challenges going ahead, um, it, it's very hard to see how the amount of money, uh, money isn't everything, but it's very hard to see how the amount of money, according to the models that have been done, that is needed, could be mobilized. That is a huge, huge challenge. So I think the, uh, putting that aside, there has to be some really hard look at how the money that's being spent now is being spent and where it needs to, it, are, is there some shifting and um, reprioritization, which is always hard to do and no one likes to hear those terms, but there, that may be the only way to, to make up some of that, yeah. So I, I would just echo um, scale-up and treatment, great, but at the expense, perhaps, of prevention, and it can't be a whack-a-mole situation anymore. We need to do everything together um, to a higher degree, more urgently. And I think um, one of the other things that we've seen through some turbulent political times, since you guys have already covered all the, the treatment stuff and, and prevention stuff, Bipartisan support for the PEPFAR reauthorization um, was really powerful in a moment when we had political gridlock here and we had bicameral, you know, unanimous consent for support for this piece of legislation. Um, I don't know where we go going forward on the issue of bipartisanship, so that is an area of concern, but hopefully something that we can um, continue to see, um, at least in this country for this, for this disease. I think one of the things that I have um, worried about the most is just the lack of emergency 
sensibility or urgency around HIV. Um, perhaps that's because I'm deep inside the world and I talk about it every day. But um, when I talk about it with people who don't know anything about it, they're still scared of, about it. And it's a catastrophic problem. Um, catastrophic when we have you know only 24.5 of the 37 million plus people living with HIV on treatment um, and the conditions that we're operating in getting more and more challenging and complex. So for me, bringing the urgency back is really, really important. And I think this um, this summer's conference will be very helpful, hopefully, to do that. But I also think, just one last quick thing, mm -hmm. we have a crisis in the way we communicate about the disease in the media. Um, you know, at the when you go back to the beginning days of the epidemic, we had um, strange bedfellows. We had very powerful friends in media helping us tell this story. Um, in a way that, that created a lot of the energy and, and interest in it. And I think we need to bring that back at this critical moment. Just oh, one quick ahead. thing. You know, I think that we do have an opportunity to get that energy back. Uh, you know, if we are able to end the epidemic in any of these localities under EHE, or if we're able to end the epidemic um, in any other place in the world, that's a game changer. I mean, 40 years into the epidemic, we can say that we actually ended HIV somewhere. What that does is it brings back media attention. It brings back the focus of the American public into this issue. It brings back optimism. And more importantly, it re-engages members of Congress and policymakers to say that if we're able to end it in this one particular locality, then why can't we um, end it in my district or why can't we end it in other places worldwide? So I'm hoping that you know we could really use that as a rallying point to move attention back towards ending HIV. Just very quickly, I completely agree. And it's interesting to see some of the PEPFAR countries that are approaching epidemic control getting more competitive even amongst themselves. You know, just that, that sense of pride and that sense of, oh my gosh, wait, Malawi did it that quickly? We're going to up our ante. So you're beginning to see that, as you say, where you get the traction, but you've got to get the traction first. Um, and what do we do in places where we have no traction, where we're backsliding, where there's an emergent but unaddressed? And I would just add to Greg's point around um, sustaining viral suppression that my colleague Catherine Bliss put out a paper in early October on the uh, issues associated with the uh, aging population of people living with HIV and the needs that we haven't fully wrapped our head around um, that may complicate their continuous viral suppression going forward. So I encourage you to check that out as well. Um, we're going to turn to audience Q&A in just a moment. So get your, your questions together and we'll come back to you. So one um, last question to each of you. Uh, which is, what can we expect this year? We kind of alluded to that a little bit, Jen did, in terms of more prep scale up, but we now have Winnie Bainema ensconced at UNAIDS. We're past the Global Fund replenishment. We're looking forward to the International AIDS Conference in San Francisco and Oakland in July. What are you watching for this year? We've talked about it being this pivotal year, but what are you really focused on? Anyone want to jump in first? I'm focused on um, the International AIDS Conference as well as the Retrovirus Conference. I'm waiting to see if there's going to be any updates um, on, on um, long-acting therapies, either for prevention or for treatment. Um, we've heard um, that there may be some things that might be announced that could be potentially exciting, and I'm hoping um, that something like that would be announced. It would be particularly helpful, as you mentioned, um, for older populations living with HIV, um, as well as for younger populations living with HIV who don't take pills as often as they should. Um, but more importantly, also um, helpful for uh, people in um, resource um, stretch settings um, who have to travel many miles to uh, get their medications if we're able to actually have an HIV medication that lasted for three months or six or four months down the road. 
Yeah, but I don't have too much to add to what everyone has said. I mean, I think the conference provides a natural moment to see, you know, what, what there's going to be new things there. There's going to be people coming together, communities coming together. And I think it's just we have to take stock of where we are. So that's probably the next moment I'm looking forward toward. I'd echo that. But also, I think we have an opportunity with the new UNAID strategy. We'll have a lot of stakeholder engagement, so lots of opportunity for many of you to participate and advise us, which we look forward to. Um, and I think, you know, our focus certainly having a new executive director who is very strongly supportive of human rights and a focus on reaching all of those who've been left behind. I think having meaningful conversations about how to take ourselves to the next level with that and looking at the global financing in a different way, some of the things that Jen mentioned, um, you know, having those conversations to figure out how we move the domestic resource mobilization how, um, number, how we realize efficiencies. It's not just about getting more money, it's also about saving costs, whether that's removing illegal user fees or you know, becoming more efficient in certain ways. Um, but I think, you know, I made a point earlier that I just want to come back to you finally. The world is more conservative in some ways, but the faith community has always been hugely important in the fight against HIV, and so I look forward to making those things come together as they did in the beginning of the epidemic, because we have a lot of different beliefs in the world about how to live, but nobody wants to see suffering. So I think seeing a unity around that, certainly at the conference and some of the upcoming work that's being done in our strategy and the work forward. All right, we're going to turn to the audience now for uh, questions. We'll take three or four and then come back to the panel. So we'll start here. We've got two here, and we'll start here. Okay, go ahead. Oh, and there's a mic for you oh, there. Sorry. Yeah, David Barstow, I, um, Regan, I, I appreciate your mentioning faith in your last paragraph here. Um, and I'm, we have some success stories now. We have some that, that Greg talked about. There are, I think, six PEPFAR countries that are on track to get 90-90-90. And I wonder how much analysis have been done of those success stories and the role of religion. So was the success because religion helped or despite religion as a barrier, or was religion kind of neutral? Go ahead, Jenny. Hi, I'm Jenny Ottenhoff from The One Campaign. Uh, we've been thinking a lot about prevention and how to kind of advocate for more and better prevention efforts in the AIDS fight. Um, to your points from all of you, clearly reaching key populations and addressing stigma is central to this, and it's also extremely difficult, um, at least from an advocacy perspective. So I'd be curious if there are best practices that you've seen in particular countries or communities that have worked well, um, if there's policies or specific kind of interventions that uh, could be scaled or, or pushed more um, at the global or national level. Part two of this question is assuming communities is central to the answer and really kind of finding interventions that work in communities. Um, recognizing the one campaign and probably many others in this room are working more at the global or national level. Um, can these interventions be pushed at the global or national level? Um, or how do we kind of make sure that what we're pushing is trickling down to the community level? Great. Any other questions right now? Okay, we've got one there. So quick question, Keith Rawlings. Um, Greg, you mentioned this briefly, and I think, Jen, you did also, that we're seeing both international and domestic successes, but can you speak to the issue of how population shifting, be it for conflict, war, or also just gentrification, is impacting the likelihood of being able to move forward in 2020 and further? Great. Okay. 
Let me just pause real quick and we'll come back to you in the next round. Um, okay, why don't, Greg, why don't I start with you? Many of these questions, I think, uh, come your direction in terms of religion and the shifting population, um, maybe some of the other community policy pieces. Too. Um, sure. I, I, you know, I, I think that the religion question is, is a good question and one that um, deserves taking a look at. The, the good thing is that we have an opportunity to take a look at it. We didn't have an opportunity the last time around. Uh, we're hoping to have another session at the International um, HIV AIDS Conference that's coming up in San Francisco where we do a refresh of um, some of these localities and perhaps bring in other localities where we could see what are some of the factors, other factors that might have contributed to their successes. And we definitely would like to take a look at religion and see how that could be a, a part of it as well. Um, in terms of um, stigma, uh, you know, stigma is just a vexing issue in um, HIV. It's, it's a shame that 40 years into the epidemic that we're still uh, dealing with this particular issue. I mean, just think um, just a couple of years ago um, when um, Charlie Sheen came out as HIV positive and we thought it was going to be an opportunity where he could teach Americans about what being undetectable means that immediately the press went to, well, who are the women that he dated? Did he infect any of these women? Um, and there was all this hysteria that was associated with him being HIV positive. Um, and that's taking place in the U.S. Uh, and and, and it's, it's a bit of a shame. But, you know, there's clearly a lot of work that we need to do and I, I, you know coincidentally some of the interventions to reduce stigma are coming in places where we haven't necessarily expected it so scale up a pre-exposure prophylaxis at least in the US alone has done wonders to reduce stigma against people living with HIV um, because people feel that you know they can now take this intervention um, on their own um, within their own power that keeps them from getting HIV. I've seen it among my group of friends who would never have dated someone who was HIV positive, several of whom are now in relationships with people who are living with HIV. So sometimes the way that we deal with stigma is gonna come from places that we completely don't anticipate. Um, and Keith, I think that your, your, your question is, um, is, is absolutely astute. I mean, certainly, you know, with the conference coming to San Francisco and the differences between um, the San Francisco Bay Area as well as Oakland, um, there is definitely some outsourcing of the epidemic that has taken place. Uh, you know, San Francisco and more tech companies have moved there. It's become less affordable. Um, the communities at highest risk, you see fewer African-Americans who live in San Francisco and others, are moving to other places outside um, of the Bay Area. So, I mean, some of the numbers that we're seeing in terms of the drop is also associated with that. It's not just San Francisco. We're seeing exactly the same thing taking place here in Washington, D.C. as well, um, where people are moving outside of the district to some of the surrounding suburban areas where we're starting to see an increase um, in HIV diagnoses because the populations are being displaced. And of course, we see the same thing taking place on a global level. But this only underscores the fact that we need to make sure that the tools that are available to reduce HIV diagnoses that we were able to highlight in our report are available to all communities, um, irrespective of resources, and to make sure that they can uh, really do the work to make an impact on the epidemic, even when we see that there's some sort of mobilization that's taking place in outsourcing of the epidemic. Greg answered most of those questions, but just to add a couple things. Um, on this, uh, Jenny's question on best practices and sort of connecting the global and the local, and I think there actually are quite a few of best practices. PEPFAR, um, the ones I'm most aware of with PEPFAR in the last decade, eight years, whatever, has really undertaken a significant effort to both through its guidance and through um, trainings at the country level to try to address some of these really deep-seated challenges and try to affect policy 
um, decisions that way. And I think that just be aware that that's already happening and there are civil society groups that are involved pretty heavily in that, the Global Fund as well. So I think it's connecting both the sort of guidance level with what's actually happening on the ground. And then also, in, um, which is harder and really requires civil society to be involved is for populations on the ground who are beneficiaries, understanding what they are able to access and when there's a problem where they, if they have recourse. Um, which is much, much stickier and challenge, more challenging. Um, on the uh, last question, Keith, around um, displacement, anytime there's displacement that is going to potentially lead to um, people not, the, uh, more of a division between who gets and who, who gets access and who doesn't. And actually at the global level, the other effect that's happening that we've seen is countries that have been um, having, having lots of in, in, in migration. Um, historical donors to HIV and other areas are now having much more pressure on their budgets to address that challenge and less able to fund some of these other problems externally. So that it's a problem, it's a global problem. And the only other thing I'll add, uh, end with on that regard is it just shows us, as we're seeing today, that there's a very complicated relationship between borders and disease. And if we think of borders and disease as, as you know, one keeps the other out, that's just not how diseases work, and we know that. So I'll end with that. The great thing about being here with these two is I don't have to say much because you've said it all. It's great. Um, I'll start with you next time. No, 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 <laughs> no, please. Um, two, two points, Jenny, to your point about community. Um, our World Days Day report was entirely focused on the power of community. We've been talking about community since the very beginning of HIV. But I think understanding what that needs to be today and how we can fund them. It's difficult to fund civil society in some parts of the world, but they are the ones who are best positioned to operate in country and to put the pressure on their governments, whether that's to mobilize resources or to change the policy. So that has to be a focus of the work, and certainly that's a focus of UNAID's work, and I know our leadership is focused on that um, from the executive director to the deputy executive director level. Um, on the engagement of the church, you know, codifying the results and its impact, we do have data. There's a lot of data out there. We know that the church is quite good. Faith leaders are quite good at um, helping with retention and care and getting a client-centered approach to care, which is going to help us with retention, which is going to help us with viral suppression. But for me, the, the role that the faith community can play, too, is one, we haven't talked about self-stigmatization a lot, and it's certainly something that a lot of people with HIV face. And when someone you look up to and admire who's your spiritual leader tells you that you're still worthy, it's still okay to focus on saving your life, it, it's powerful. And I've seen that all over the world. And, and even the church is a hub of disseminating um, product to people or being a place where people can come to get, to get um, the services or the, the treatment or prevention that they need. Um, so it can be a very powerful role, obviously. Um, and then I just think uh, also the shift in the PEPFAR focus to, to localization, um, looking at both indigenous local groups, but some of them being faith-led. Faith um, we started with a faith-led uh, response in a lot of countries before there were hospitals. Um, so how do we take the best practices of the medical establishments that we've built through the work of PEPFAR and Global Fund and, and the outreach and combine that with the um, practices that have worked from the beginning? And in places where we don't yet have universal care and we don't have universal care almost anywhere, including our own country. So how do you reach a lot of people where you don't have the infrastructure? So um, some thoughts there. Thanks. All right, let's uh, do another round. We'll start over here and then go around. So go here and then we'll come to Chris. Hey all, Matthew Rose with HealthGap. Uh, I am always perplexed by this question that we keep coming up to is that we have these great interventions but everything depends on time and keeping people engaged 
on both the prevention side and the treatment side, as well as the other health challenges that kind of happen in their lives. In a world where we have shrinking resources, how do we kind of rejigger some of the system to think about how do we integrate HIV care into primary care? How do we keep people persistent on PrEP? How do we keep people engaged and virally suppressed beyond just the first time they hit that endpoint for what will probably be a very extended period of time? Great, thanks. Okay, can we get a mic here? Good morning, wonderful panel. Uh, my name is Chris Collins. I'm with Friends of the Global Fight. Um, you know, uh, we're in the situation where we need to accelerate progress on HIV globally and here in the U.S. And at the same time, a lot of the world policymakers, advocates are animated by universal health coverage and more primary health care. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things from the AIDS movement that need to be integrated into UHC, including, you know, delivering services to marginalized populations, human rights-based services, outcomes-oriented. Uh, tracking. And by the same token, people living with HIV need a full complement of health services around them, not just HIV services if they're going to live full lives. So how does the HIV movement, which we want to accelerate, <laughs> how does it relate to UHC and uh, should we be thinking it's oppositional or what are the opportunities for it not to be? Great. Any other questions? Oh, one over here. This might be a friendly amendment, uh, Dan Teets, to, uh, to the last question, which is, so you mentioned London, Greg. Um, well, in UK generally, and really extraordinary numbers, if you think about it. So apart from money, like money helps, um, what do you think has really made the difference there? And can that be translated to other places that are less rich? I'm going to start with Regan this time. So we have two very uh, <coughs> related questions around integration and also the relationship with UHC. And then Greg will come down to you for London. Thanks. So um, to both of your questions, I, I think something I've often considered is how can we take a patient who, so a, a newly diagnosed patient and a patient who's 25 years in have totally different needs. And your needs change over the time that you're living with HIV. And then your circumstances in life change within the course of your own life. So is there a way, um, as we work towards you know, broader, if not universal, coverage, which is not a reality in, some, in a lot of places yet, how do we both push for care that's going to be comprehensive, that's going to be accessible by the majority of people, but also, until we get there, um, use the systems that we have to cover the, the people that we're trying to cover in the best way. So for example, could you take someone who's newly diagnosed, give them a lot of attention, a lot of care, and a lot of visits, and a lot of lab work, and then someone who's more treatment experienced or has lived with the vi virus for a longer time, can that person come in once a year or twice a year for labs? Can that person be employed? So I've always thought that we should use HIV-positive people you know, to give back to the system. And, and when you survive it and you have the advantages of surviving, we're often a great untapped resource. You know, I think most people living with HIV would, would feed back into the system if there was an easy way for them to do that, maybe even part-time, very small. But even if everybody did it, it would help. And that may seem like a pipe dream, but it's, it's really not. I mean, I've done counseling throughout the years, just helping people get through those first couple of months. And then once they get to a certain place, they're often in a very different position. So I think you often have to front load the services and the support and the wraparound services. Um, and that may come in and out, depending on the, the circumstances of a person's life. So it's trying to take what we have and apply it um, 
you know, in a, in a staggered over the course of a lifetime or an in and out as needed basis so that we can um, serve the needs. In terms of universal health care, I think you're right. I think we need to figure out what the AIDS um, movement can do to help inform the UHC movement. Um, there's so much to translate. We were the snowplow for so many things, and certainly um, we've worked uh, you know, in Ebola, some of the things that happened in Ebola that were breakthroughs came from the HIV community. So how do we concretize that? How do we make that formalized and work with the UHC community to um, accelerate progress there where we can? Jen, do you want to add anything? Uh, three three things. First, on on the first point, Matt, that you said. I mean, just to add, one, we we all take for you know as given that we strive for the best combination therapy that anyone should have. Right? That there's going to be new treatments that might come along, and we just got to get the right combination. We should just have that mindset for everything for the course of the epidemic, for the sort of the lifespan. So it's there's going to be combination prevention and combination interventions for at any point, and it's going to differ over time depending upon age and circumstance. And so I think it's a really we we have not had that mindset, but I think it's the it's the combination therapy mindset. Um, on the UHC uh, question around opposition, I think they often get opposed, right? So it's we either have HIV or we have UHC, and they one might not be good for the other, et cetera. But uh, you know, we, uh, that, that's that could be the case. There is a risk there. Um, I was reminded when you were asking the question of um, in the context of the U.S. Uh, we have the Ryan White program, which is you know the a dedicated program for people with HIV who are uninsured or underinsured. It's one of the best, most successful programs in the U.S. It's the only disease-specific grant program of its kind that's a federal grant program. When the ACA was passed and many more people with HIV got access to um, uh, coverage and, and care, both through Medicaid and through the private marketplaces, we did some qualitative research with people who had gotten new access. And we heard, uh, it's so interesting, and maybe not surprising, but to hear it. So those with HIV that we talked to, um, they all said that Ryan White was their lifesaver. They, their HIV care was taken care of. With, without Ryan White, they would have died. They, we heard that from many, many people um, that we spoke to. But what they didn't have is they didn't have co coverage for their hypertension, for the, the broken leg that they were suffering from pain from, that the, the you know, their heart, their heart condition. Once they got the other coverage, whether it was through Medicaid or the marketplace, they got that as well. What we heard from, if you, if you do similar um, uh, interviews with people who are, were not HIV positive, just didn't have health coverage, they didn't have any of this, this particular thing for any condition they had until they got the, their general coverage. So it's both. Um, and I think that was a really important lesson from, for HIV. Um, and then lastly, uh, on the London thing, I'll let um, Greg talk a little bit about that, but I, I think there, it's not just money. Be, uh, it's, and it's, sometimes it is, but it's not as resource intensive as people may think. It's what, what happened in London is also what happened in San Francisco, and it's what's happening in New York, and it's what hap it's happening in other places. It's getting, pe getting people tested regularly for S and STD screening as well as HIV screening, and getting sort of immediate ARV um, start. That is a really critical part of this. And that is not the resource intensivity, the intensive part of that is personnel mostly. So it's, it's rapid start. And all of these places that were in that report, almost all of them did rapid start. And that's not something we're doing in the U.S., for example, other than a few places. So. And I, Jen really answered all 
I'd mentioned, or what, what I wanted to say about London. I, I think, you know, some of the things that are different with the UK as compared to the US is that, um, you know, some of the policies are different. Of course, you have a healthcare system that's different. And of course, it's just a smaller geographic area. The US is huge. Um, and we have a substantial epidemic that's in the southern United States, where which presents its own challenges in terms of making sure that there's adequate um, resources, healthcare personnel, um, as well as services for people living with HIV. But exactly as Jen had mentioned, you know, some of the successes that we've already seen in the UK are already happening in the US, particularly among gay and bisexual men in um, Massachusetts, in California, um, in New York, um, Washington State. Um, these things are happening. The problem, though, is that even though we're seeing these decreases in infections among gay and bisexual men in the US, you're still seeing populations that are left behind. <clears throat> so we're still seeing that you know, black gay men are still less likely to have those sharp decreases compared to some of the other populations. Um, and what we need to do is we need to kind of get to what the UK is able to do there. Um, in the UK, you see huge disparities between black gay men and white gay men in terms of infections, <clears throat> but those disparities disappear as soon as people get into care because the healthcare system there is different. So once people get into care, the outcomes are completely the same among both black and white gay men. And we have the opportunity to do the same here in the US. And coincidentally, what, what Jen had mentioned through the Ryan White program. The Ryan White program, um, I'm not sure if many of you have seen, there have been several um, papers that they published lately, but they've done a, long a longitudinal analysis and they're seeing that disparities by race, by sex, um, by sexual orientation is essentially disappearing um, in the Ryan White program as the years go on because of the way that care is provided within that program. And if we're able to, um, able to um, expand that uh, for people living with HIV, then I think that we definitely have an opportunity to try and reduce some of these disparities and get to see what we're seeing in the UK as well. Okay, thanks. All right, we have time for another quick round of questions. If there's anyone else. Okay, I see two here. We'll start with those. Thanks. I'm Jimmy Colker, former lots of things uh, diplomat <laughs> and bureaucrat. Um, it's great that it's great to see all of you, and that you're telling good stories. That AIDS gets attention, and that we have a lot of good news to report. But in looking at the title of the session, there are some major countries. You mentioned Mozambique, Nigeria, also Russia, to a large extent South Africa, where it's not that people don't know what's going on there. There have been repeated interventions and changes of strategy and different innovations, and they don't seem to be benchmarking Malawi or Thailand in those countries. These are countries that have dynamics of their own. And I'm just curious whether these are going to be chronic problems in 2030 as well, or whether we really can turn the corner in, in the hardest to uh, reach epidemics. Great, thank you. All right, one right here. Hi, um, thank you very much. My name is Tamar Chalitza, I'm with UC Berkeley, um, but uh, I was former lead officer on Universal Health Coverage Political Declaration, so I would like to make a very brief comment, rather. Um, I think that uh, it should be very strong link between Universal Health Coverage now and uh, the AIDS movement, as you uh, very rightly mentioned. Uh, we looked at the universal health coverage as the universal uh, umbrella, actually, as an overarching umbrella for all health-related goals, and uh, 
objectives, uh, and we really certainly hope that this is how it will be looked at, because we try not to be also prescriptive into the declaration. It's only 12 pages long. However, we do have HIV AIDS very heavily addressed there, so even though the, it's not that long, uh, considering that it's extremely important. So I think it should be very strong link, and uh, all the governments committed to this. We have adopted the resolution. It's there. And uh, universal, without universal health coverage, I think it will be very difficult to uh, address this very important issue. That's my comment. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? Okay. We'll wrap that up. And I, um, to Jimmy's point, um, we're going to do the preview of the documentary in a moment, which gets a little bit more into the risk. And then our next session uh, in April, on April 15th, we'll get more into the risks and the challenges and the policies. Today was supposed to be more of the the better news story, um, but I definitely think that's a, a great question, and maybe I'll turn to Regan first to address that. Um, and then any other parting comments that you want to offer, feel free. Great. Well, if I knew how to end AIDS in Nigeria and Mozambique, I'd be in a different place. But um, I obviously don't have the answers to that. But I think the the, the question is, are we as a community being are we ready to talk about that and go hard through the front door on that? Because, you know, we say, oh, yeah, and, and Mozambique and Nigeria and, and, you know, Russia. Like, we have to figure out what to do. If we're going to meaningfully talk about ending AIDS, we can't talk about it and then have those things be parentheticals. They're huge parts of the epidemic. So I think and I hope that since we have a new moment with certainly new leadership at UNAIDS and with the conference, I, I hope there will be a, a razor-sharp focus on that. and figuring out also in our strategy development, you know, what didn't work and what did. Some of it's still working, so we should keep that. But getting to beyond the what is happening to, so what are we going to do about it? Because, you know, often in Washington we are good at articulating the problems and not as good at, and maybe it's not our job to come up with every answer, but to push for those answers because um, we can't stagnate. And, and we're beginning to see backsliding. I mean, South Africa is a perfect example. I've heard lots of theories on why South Africa in particular is struggling, and I, and I don't have the answers. But I know looking harder for those answers and having harder conversations at the political level um, is part of it, but also understanding what's happening on the ground, and, and, I, and I don't have the answer on some of those countries. Um, I think just in general, I just want to thank you, Sarah and Steve, for having me here, and we look forward to being with you all in April, where Winnie will share with you her vision. It is really exciting to work for um, a new leader at UNAIDS who is bold and outspoken on a lot of the issues we've talked about today, um, and I think brings new energy and brings a broader perspective coming from outside of the um, HIV universe and her focus on human rights and equality. And you know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about when we're talking about key populations or young girls who are extra vulnerable or people who are susceptible to GBV is, you know, it's, it's inequity, whether it's financially driven or gender driven or, you know, sexually, your sexual preference driving. It's, it's just people who are not given the same degree of honor and position and advantage and opportunity in life. And so, you know, it's a pipe dream to say the world needs to be peaceful and we all should have access to everything. And I'm not, I'm not you know, obviously naive. But we do have to think about how to meaningfully change those you know, fundamental um, balances in lives if we really expect to be able to get universal health care and or AIDS care to people. So um, time to have tough conversations. So thank you for opening this dialogue. Sure. No, I also wanted to say thanks and to all of you for some tough questions. Um, the one other parting thought I'll, I'll have is relates to the UHC question again because one of the 
the opportunities for UHC that the HIV response offers is community. Um, the strong, we would not have the HIV response that we have globally or domestically without community. Um, and the way that community has been built into the response um, at every level, it's not perfect. There's always you know, issues, but more so than any other area of global health and probably any other global development sector or challenge that I've ever encountered. That's an amazing accomplishment. And it's one that we, I think the global community has a lot to learn from. Also wanted to thank you for um, the opportunity to speak today. Um, we had some really tough questions, um, um, really good questions for us to consider. Um, you know, I guess the only thing that I would add is the fact that um, you know, the response to HIV, both globally and domestically, has not been perfect, uh, but the trajectory has always been progress. And when I think about the remarkable progress that we've made as a community in the past 40 years, um, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, quite frankly, neither Regan nor I would even be here um, if we weren't able to make the progress that we've made um, over the past 40 years. And, if I were a betting man, and if I had to bet on a disease that we would actually be able to eradicate by 2030, I still have my bet on HIV. I still think that there's an awful lot that our community is going to be able to do to actually end this disease. And I'm still more in the sense of being more optimistic um, and, a lot of the th and, and looking at the challenges that we have and saying that we're going to be able to obviate them than thinking that these are stumbling blocks that are just going to be problematic for a period of time. So thank you again. All right, well, please join me in thanking our panelists today for their contributions. We're going to pivot very quickly. I'm going to bring up um, Jay Stephen Morrison and Justin Kenny, who are going to introduce the, uh, the, the brief, are we calling it a trailer? What are we calling it? Clip. clip. Thank you. Clip of the film. So wait, please stay where you are. Here okay, sure. That's okay. Yep. Here, I can give you this. You still got your Kansas City gear, I see. You can't underestimate the level of enthusiasm that Sarah can bring to bear around the Kansas City Chiefs. This is a big day. It's a big day. Yesterday was even bigger. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to show you like six and a half minutes that is meant to uh, provide you a glimpse into what this film is, is, gonna, is about and what, how it looks. And I'm just going to take a few minutes and tell you a, a bit about the genesis of it and what we're trying to do in the film and ask Justin, who's the partner. Uh, Justin is a filmmaker and a writer and a producer, an award-winning uh, uh, filmmaker. Um, uh, we uh, uh, partnered to put together in 2017 the hour-long documentary on violence against the health sector, the new barbarianism which was quite successful and, 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 and uh, was screened in many different places. We put a shorter piece together on North Korea in the fall of 19. Um, the genesis of this particular effort, um, which we're undertaking also with Mike Merson and with Sarah Allender as, as major contributors to this, Maggie's being very important in helping us pull the pieces together. The impetus of this was, for me, was at Amsterdam, at the International AIDS Conference in 2018, going around and listening to everyone speaking across this spectrum of, of experts who had, who, who had become somewhat iconic or legendary figures in the AIDS world over many years from different 
places from different countries and different walks, and the level of disquiet that they exhibited about where we were. And also the awareness that we're approaching the 40-year mark in June of 2021, 40-year mark of, uh, of the um, sort of discovery of HIV-AIDS, um, uh, with, with still with no vaccine and no cure and a dangerous uh, infectious disease epidemic that by definition without those fundamental tools uh, poses all sorts of deep problems. Um, we, um, and that comes at a period after amazing achievements and amazing investments and in mobilization. So what we've chosen to do, I think this film will be about an hour in length. I don't think we want to be much longer than that. It's going to have a couple of different components that are woven into the story. The challenge for us is figuring out how to tell that story without being too confusing. We've chosen to put a focus on three geographic zones. We've gone and done uh, on-the-ground interviews and filming in the U.S. South, in Memphis and in Arkansas. We've done some filming in Oakland and San Francisco. We've done a film in a little filming in, in South Carolina, with Dr. Redfield consulting with community members there recently. We've put a big focus on the epidemic in Ukraine, and we're pairing that comparatively with what's happening in Russia. So we did a lot of interviews on the ground in Odessa and Kyiv. We also, uh, both within Ukraine, but elsewhere, found people who could speak to the big picture around what has happened in those two countries, Russia and Ukraine, which have very similar epidemics and very divergent outcomes, Russia being still a, a, a deeply disturbing and dangerous and, and escalating outbreak. Um, we went to South Africa. We went to KwaZulu-Natal. We went to Gauteng. Um, again, the idea was to uh, 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 get those people on camera who were frontline uh, 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 members of this epidemic, uh, frontline folks who are coming pr principally from key populations. So in the case of South Africa, it was, it was adolescent girls, young women, and it was sex workers who got special attention. We also were talking to those who were the, who were the brain trust on the response, the national response in South Africa, in Ukraine, in the United States. So. There's a geographic focus. We're trying to bring across very vividly what is happening in these places. How, are they, how is this epidemic being seen today by people who are those frontline players? A second thing we're trying to tell, the second story we're trying to tell, is what has happened over the course of those 40 years. So we, we interviewed many people who have been involved in the epidemic since the, since the earliest crisis period. Um, and we, and many of those people have been, uh, have made a lifetime commitment across different periods. So they can speak to what it was like in the plague years when the threats and the crises were, and, and the sense of hopelessness and fear were, were thick. They can speak to the period of magic and transformation um, in the later period. And they can speak to the era that we're in today, which is an era of paradox, great achievement and great disquiet. Um, we, um, so we're trying to do that. We're also, we, we deliberately set out to try to get the views of, of those many different leaders who form this community, of uh, this cerebral cortex of the global response over the last 40 years. This is a phenomenon that I think is quite unusual, quite exceptional, that we have so many personalities who 
came into this at the earliest days and have stayed with it, whether it's in South Africa or it's in Ukraine or it's in the United States, have stayed with it. And they form this unusual community of, that with, a, with a, uh, quite, a, um, quite a perspective. And we're trying to bring across um, uh, in their voices what they see happening. We're trying to explain why this is a paradox and what that means and wh wh why these folks have entered into this period of introspection and, 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 and concern, but also to answer the question, so what? So if we're in a different period right now of ris risk of resurgence, risk of regression, disquiet, what does that mean in terms of priorities and, and looking ahead? Do we change the way we do business or not? Or is it just do more better and trying to answer those questions. The film will be completed and rolled out here on April 15th. It will be shown a few days later, April 18th, over at the Capitol Hilton, Washington Hilton, where the Consortium of Universities of Global Health are having their annual meeting. Uh, you can sneak in if you're not registered. I'm giving you permission. Um, it'll be on Saturday afternoon, uh, that Saturday, April 18th, at 4.30 p.m. There'll be a panel discussion involving some of the people that are in the film. It'll be shown at the AIDS 2020 um, July meeting. Uh, we will, we've already entered discussions, which we need to firm up details on how it's going to be shown in Kyiv, in South Africa, um, in London, and, and, and elsewhere. Um, I'm going to ask Justin to say a few words, and then we're just going to show you some slices of uh, some footage from a couple of places. We'll show you some of the comments that we've accumulated from this cerebral cortex, and then we'll just, that's just a, 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 a quick, quick taster. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, I'm just gonna let you know, um, last spring uh, we had an event here and we showed some of um, the filming that we did uh, in the rural US South and in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, today we're gonna show a very small slice of our filming in Ukraine. South Africa, and then also an expert, an excerpt from chapter one. One thing I do want to mention, though, which we didn't touch on yet, and which we're going to be examining quite a bit in the film, is just how powerful sort of the socio socioeconomic issues, the stigma issues, the cultural issues that surround this, and which are quite shocking. I'm, I'm a, sort of a layperson coming to this um, quite late, but I. I I was pretty shocked in the amount of discrimination um, that people, many brave people, um, face, um, and not so brave people are, are being left behind. So I, I think that's something that's going to be very important uh, that we're going to illustrate in the film as well. And we're going to show you these clips, and it's going to run about six and a half minutes. And I want to offer special thanks to Justin for staying up very, very late <laughs> over the course of the last several days in order to bring these pieces together for you. So thank you, Justin. Thank you.